Turn to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in the last chapter, chapter 31. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the row in front of you. You can borrow this morning. In the last chapter of 1 Samuel, as we conclude our, our series in 1 Samuel. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant Word. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel... And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth-shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we began our journey into 1 Samuel on September, I looked back, on September 25th, 2022, almost exactly a year ago. So we've been in 1 Samuel, and here we are finishing it today. So in doing so, let's do a quick review. <clears throat> and to do a quick review, I want to actually go before 1 Samuel and go to the book of Judges and to remind us what was happening before we get to 1 Samuel. Well, remember we saw in Judges that the people were just constantly unfaithful to God. Constantly unfaithful to his commands to destroy their enemies and worship him alone. And instead, they intermarried with the peoples and they adopted their gods. And the result was this Judges cycle, we call it. The cycle of idolatry, of oppression from another country, crying out to God and then his deliverance through another judge. 
And the cycle plays out. Idolatry, oppression, crying out, deliverance. Idolatry, oppression, crying out, deliverance. That is what Judges is. And again and again, the cycle plays out. And just when we think Israel's learned its lesson, it falls back into idolatry yet again. And and Judges ends with this ominous yet foreboding statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's Judges 21, 25. That's the last thing we hear. There's no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Fast forward to the book of Ruth, <clears throat> the very next book, and we, we see in this, in this book, it's set in the time of the judges, and we, we hear of this woman named Ruth, who is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. She's a Moabite woman, and she travels back to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi, eventually to become betrothed to an Israelite named Boaz. And so Ruth is this example of faithfulness to the Lord, even when you're not of the Lord's people and his ability to bring someone who's faithful to him in and give them provision. And so at the end of Ruth, we get another hint of what's to come for Israel. We get a genealogy, and genealogies are all throughout, especially the Old Testament, but in the New as well, where it recalls this person fathered this person, this person person fathered this person, and it's always for a purpose. And the purpose here is to point to the line of Boaz pointing to, to King David, his great-grandson. The text reads, they named their son Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So in Judges, we get a longing final verse that states explicitly there's no king. And in Ruth, we get a final verse that points to the coming birth of David. So as we approached 1 Samuel, we were expectant, right? We were, were expecting a coming king. His name was David. And more than David, it points to this longing we all have for a coming king, to rule and reign, to protect and guide, to shepherd and secure and bless God's people. And so what I want to do in this final chapter of 1 Samuel is to remind us of that 30,000-foot view of the landscape, of the biblical landscape. And I want to ask the questions, what have been the major themes in 1 Samuel, and what has God taught us with this book? And as we do it, we're going to see three truths. We're going to see a longing for a king, we're going to see a light for God's people, and we're going to see the lordship for God's glory. Three main themes. There's a lot of themes in 1 Samuel, but I think those are three of the, the, the biggest themes. And the hope I want to leave you with this morning is that because God can bring light into the darkest of places, we can trust God will reign over us, that he'll provide for us, and that he'll ordain all things for our good and his glory. And that's what we see, don't we? We see, we see this is a dark passage. This is, this is a dark time period. Yet again, as judges ended in darkness, this, this first half of the story of Samuel is ending on a dark on a minor key, as we would say. Longing for a king. You know, even with Saul's death, God is doing something, isn't he? He is still working. Let's unpack this final scene as, we, as I walk you through it. There's this final battle between Saul, Israel, and the Philistines. Philistines have been the enemy of Israel all throughout First Samuel. And they had this final battle on Mount Gilboa. 
And we see quickly that the Philistines are overtaking Saul and the, and the Israel. Um, all his sons die. Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua all die. Then Saul gets hit by a number of arrows, and he can tell he's not going to make it. But instead of drawing out his, his death so that he could be mistreated, he asks his armor bearer to draw out his sword and to take his life. But he won't do it. And he won't do it because he feared. He feared not. He didn't want to take the Lord's anointed. And so Saul falls on his own sword, and his armor bearer falls on his own sword. And there they die on Mount Goboa. And then we see the Philistines. They come. They, they, they're victorious. They strip the slain in verse 8. They cut off Saul's head. They strip him of his armor, and they put his body on the wall, him and, and his sons, at the wall of Beth Shan. Complete disaster for, for Israel. Complete destruction and a complete victory for the Philistines. However, it does end with a slight, uh, on, a, on, a, on a good note, you could say. The inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, they come, they hear that the Philistines, what they've done to Saul, they and the valiant men, they come at night and they take the body of Saul off the wall and the bodies of his sons. And there they burn. At that point, People have asked, why do they burn their bodies here? Probably because there was a lot of decomposition happening with the bodies. So they burn the, the flesh, keep the bones, and then they bury the bones back at Jabesh. If you'll recall, earlier in 1 Samuel, Saul's first victory as king was to save these men of Jabesh. So what they're doing is returning their thanks, their gratitude to Saul, even after his death. It's a little uh, too late too little, too late to help him. So this is a sad note. It's a sad ending to this book. But as it's the end of Saul's reign and his life, it's also the beginning of David's reign. It's the beginning of something new. I was uh, reading the commentator, Del Ralph Davis. He, he puts it like this in a bleak way. He says, First Samuel is simply a sad book of one disappointment after another. The judgment on ungodly leadership in chapter 4 with Hophni and Phinehas. The rejection of prophetic leadership with Samuel when they say, we want a king, we don't want you, God or Samuel. The disintegration of royal leadership with Saul. He continually falls and falls and falls further from God. Here is the kingdom of God enduring one failure after another. The kingdom of God enduring one failure after another. Yet, Yahweh... God, who looks on the heart, has chosen a shepherd for these scattered sheep. Just because we're in a dark moment in Israel's history doesn't mean the Lord has forsaken his people. He has chosen a shepherd for these scattered sheep. You'll remember David, when we first hear of David in chapter 16, he's he's not with the sons who is being chosen to be the king. What does his father say? Behold, he is keeping the sheep. David the shepherd. That's who we first hear about this chosen king. And so we see this theme of of kingship and yearning and wanting a king uh, from early in 1 Samuel. If you go back to chapter 8, this is when the people ask for a king. They want to be just like all the other nations. They, They don't want to be led by Samuel. They don't want to be led by judges anymore. They say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And God responding to, to Samuel, he, he says, 
don't worry, they're not rejecting you. God says, they've rejected me from being king over them. You see, their motivation for a king was sinful, but God used it, didn't he? He had planned all along to give them a king. You know, longing for a king, desiring and wanting a king is a good thing. Good rulers are a blessing. As Dale said earlier in in, uh, his prayer, reminded me of Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, Paul writes. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Good leaders are a blessing for us. But what do we do when we lack good leaders? You may be feeling that right now in our moment in this day and age. We don't have a lot of good leaders. There's a reason that pretty frequently another pastor, a coach, a politician has some big moral failing that propels him or her out of their position of power. Our culture, I think especially our younger generation, feels leaderless. And it's not accidental with our movement away from ultimate standards of right and wrong, truth and lies. We're completely rudderless as a society in that sense, and no one feels equipped to lead well. There's no king in Israel, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. We're we're not that all different. When you read the Old Testament, we're not that different from that day and age. You see, we live in a day where our culture wants the benefits of God's kingdom, but not the submission a king requires. We don't want to submit to a king. You know, as I was first thinking of why to go through 1 Samuel last year, why should we pick 1 Samuel? Well, I thought more about it, and um, one of the reasons was we were were going through a big transition as a church, and this, this this is a book all about transition, as they are going from without a king to a monarchy in Israel. And as I read and, and read more about Saul and the failings he had, I, I had to confess that my tendencies in my life are so Saul-like. Right? I, I, I want to go my own way. I want to figure it out. I want the benefits of God without being in submission to God. That's what Saul often fell into. But if I'm being honest, I struggle just like Saul. You see, Saul had a worship disorder. As we see him go deeper and deeper into sin, he disobeyed God in different ways. He fell into jealousy with David. Remember that song? David's, uh, Saul's killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousands. He was jealous for David, of David. And then that led him into anger. Right? Do you remember the, the scenes where he took his spear and tried to pin David and Jonathan? And then that led him into actual murder, where he killed or he used another person to kill all the priests at Nob, which led him into further disobedience, using the witch of Endor to try to bring Samuel back. And then that's led him ultimately to judgment and death. His heart was far from God. And that's another major theme of this whole book is, is the heart. That the Lord looks on your heart and my heart. Chapter 16, verse 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
God always wanted a people for himself where he had their heart. He, did it. he doesn't just want your obedience or my obedience. It's always been a battle for the heart. In Ezekiel, there's this promise uh, in, the, in the New Covenant that when the Spirit saves his people and brings the people to himself, he says, Ezekiel 11, I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules, and they'll be my people, and I'll be their God. But for, and there's a warning. But for those whose heart goes after detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads. It's the heart that God wants. You see, I think as we look at what eventually happened to Saul, I think it's that he didn't know he didn't know God as his king. That was, in the end, his downfall. That God's plan for the kings, the human kings of Israel, was that they would submit to, to the Lord as king. And Saul never knew God as king. And so we come to realize who the king is when we understand why the king is coming. He's not coming to save us from our earthly enemies, but from our own sin. From what's inside us, not, not necessarily what's outside of us. And it's there we see the only perfect sinless king that will be able to save his people will come in Jesus. You know, the, the big promise that the world offers us today and has offered us from the beginning of time is to be your own king. We particularly as Americans, we, we are tempted by that all the time. American, this, this idea of individualism. Be your own God, be your own king, do your own thing, live how you want to. But God tells us to submit to his son as king. To submit to his son. So that's the first major theme we see all throughout 1 Samuel is yearning for a king, looking for a king. The second one is, is this idea of light. In the midst of darkness, light for God's people. And when I say light, I mean really revelation. God speaking, God giving us guidance, giving his word to us. It's like uh, when you are in an argument or a debate with someone, you want to bring light into that debate, not heat. Right? Heat is emotion. Light is truth and wisdom. I don't know if any of you... I didn't really look at it, but if, if you went to the, uh, watch the GOP debate the other night, um, it's basically people yelling at each other. So there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of heat there, but not much light, right? Not much, not much revelation, not much truth. And that, I think, is a good example of how our, often our dialogue in our culture is going today. God gave... Light. He, he's come to give us light. He's come to give us guidance. He's come to guide us with his providence. We see one of the first examples of that in, in early on in 1 Samuel. If you go to uh, chapter 2, we see the promise that Hannah is going to have a baby. She's, she's this, remember, the mother of Samuel. She's barren. And she visits with her and, and, and tells her that she will... She will have a child, and her prayer 
This, this inspired prayer becomes sort of the table of contents for all of 1 Samuel of what's going to take place. What are the major themes? And one of those themes is that there's going to be these reversals of human fortune. There's going to be these changes of what we typically think of how people lead. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken. This is in chapter 2. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. There's going to be these changes. In God's kingdom, he's going to flip things on its head. And it's the weak that are going to lead. It's the small that are going to, to lead God's people. And we see that play out. We see Samuel as this little kid in the temple God speaking through him to Eli, where we read that God's word and is not very common in those days. No, no visions are common. And then we'll see later David, this youth, slaying a giant, Goliath. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. It means God can reverse any situation, no matter how dire it looks or how permanent it seems. Just going back to that idea of Hannah's barrenness when she couldn't have children. You know, not being able to have children, especially in the Old Testament, in ancient times was the ultimate tragedy for a married woman to not have kids. Since her husband's hopes and dreams depended on her providing him with a son to perpetuate his name and to inherit his estate. And not only that, every Israelite woman had the hope of possibly providing the seed of of the Messiah. That the Messiah would come through her line where they were promised in Genesis 3 that he will bruise your head, talking to the serpent, and the serpent will bruise his heel. And you know, barrenness in the Old Testament, it's a common theme we see throughout Genesis and the Old Testament. Hannah's story reflects back on Sarah and Abraham and, and the impossibility of them having children in their old age. And we hear about Rebecca, we hear about Rachel, we hear about Samson's mother, and then when we get to the New Testament, we hear about John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. They were all barren. But what was different about them? They they had children, they had baby boys who became instrumental in God's plan of salvation. And so could it be that God presents impossible situations to us to make us more reliant upon him? Could it be that God's given you situations in your life where it's felt impossible? That you did not know how you were going to do what you had to do? What are you facing right now that seems impossible? Is it a cancer diagnosis? Is it the loss of a job? Is it the loss of a spouse, of a grandparent, a parent, a friend? What are you facing? Ask yourself the question, could it be I have this in my life because God wants me to be more reliant upon him? So friends, let us not lose hope. God is working. God never stops working for his people. That's why we read from Heidelberg Catechism 28 that we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence and our faithful God and Father, that nothing will separate us from his love.
patient, hopeful. Nothing's going to separate us from God. It's in this t- these times of complete darkness that God can always say, let there be light. Let there be light. So who are you listening to? What voices are you allowing into your mind, into your computer, into your TV? What's speaking to you? And are you, is that confirming with God's truth? Or is it countering it? You know, David had a lot of examples throughout 1 Samuel where he could have listened to the lies. He had a rocky road to ruling and reigning as God's king. He did not have it easy. We read chapter after chapter, week after week of this past year, where Saul came after him, kept coming after him, even to the point where David had to leave Israel. He had to get out of town. And he could have believed lies. And he didn't do it perfectly. But in the end, he did trust in God. He was always led by God's promises. God's promises, friends, they point ultimately, they find their fulfillment in Christ. His word is fulfillment in Christ. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh, a light in the darkness. There's this great scene in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus, after he's born and his parents are bringing his little baby and his parents are bringing him into the temple and there's this man who's been at the temple for years. His name is Simeon. And somehow God promised him that he would see the Messiah before he died. That's a pretty awesome promise. So he knew he was going to see his, the, the Messiah before he died. And so he gets this opportunity to, to see the baby come in and hold Jesus. And he declares as he's holding Jesus, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He called Jesus a light. He is the light in the midst of the darkness. They had waited hundreds of years for Jesus to arrive, and here he is, finally, allowing this man, Simeon, to depart in peace. That's the fulfillment of all his promises, of all God's promises, where where we go back and back again to God's word and finding his revelation. Let's move to the third and final theme that we see as we end 1 Samuel, and that is the lordship for God's glory. Lordship for God's glory. Again and again, we're reminded through 1 Samuel, even in the chapters where God's not named, not mentioned explicitly, God's in control. It doesn't seem like it all the time. Same things that happen seem random, but he's in control. His sovereign will and power are on display. And even Saul's death and his son's death is a part of God's plan. You know, it's interesting. When you read other historical narratives, they, uh, they overlap with 1 Samuel. And so you can read even in 1 Chronicles as to sort of an interpretation as to what took place. And if you go to 1 Chronicles 10, it talks about this scene. It says, so the Lord put him to death. We don't read that in 1 Samuel 31. We don't read explicitly that the Lord put him to death. But that is what happened. Through the Philistines, through the judgment on Saul, the Lord put him to death. Through the actions of sinful people, God, it was his doing. 
ultimately. But you know what I grapple with and it's difficult with this chapter? It's not Saul's death. He's deserving. It's his son, Jonathan's death. Isn't that hard? And Jonathan was faithful. Jonathan was obedient. Jonathan was David's best friend. Jonathan had even told him earlier in this in the story that, David, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be ruling and reigning next to you. I'm going to support you in your kingdom. Obviously, he didn't get the chance. He died, along with his other brothers and his father. He was an obedient follower of the Lord. So what do we make of his death there? That's difficult. How does his death differ from, from Saul's, his father? Where, well, where his death, where Saul's father, where Saul's death was judgment, Jonathan's death was a homecoming. He'd done his part. Dale Ralph Davis says, John, Jonathan was nowhere else but in the place that God had assigned to him, at the side of his father. And maybe that's not tragic after all. He says, what is tragic about remaining faithfully in the calling God has assigned us? What is tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom that he could not have to enter a kingdom that he could not lose? Right? You remember David, or, uh, Jonathan had actually abdicated his throne to David already. Jonathan had the most to lose when he gave his throne, his inheritance over to the anointed one, David. He lost a lot, but he received so much in the end. He, he entered into a kingdom he could not lose. And that's true of any of us who are obedient to God and have to suffer for it. God is going to, to give you what you need. He's going to re- reward you. Think about it when a missionary dies on the mission field serving God. Not a tragedy in the end. How about when a husband takes care of his dying wife? It's hard. It's suffering. It's service. But it's a blessing. How about when a parent is up five times in the night with a sleepless child? It's hard. It's tough. It's sacrificial. But it's serving God's kingdom. You know, Jonathan teaches me an important lesson that all God's servants should follow, that we exist to serve God's kingdom and not our own. We exist to exalt King Jesus and not our own. And so that's the question that is begged as we finish this book. Will we serve in God's kingdom? Will we be like Jonathan? No matter what our ultimate fate is on the battlefield, will we serve like he did? And here's the good news. God's word is dependable. His word is absolutely dependable. Del Ralph Davis says, Israel may fall on Gilboa. Saul may fall on his own sword. But the word of God will not fail. It will and has surely come to pass. You see, God's power is on display, even at the very end. Nothing's too difficult for God. No situation's too dire or lost or bad for God to bring a miracle into it. You know, there's been one line throughout 1 Samuel that I've been really hanging on to, and it's the words of Samuel in chapter 12, 
when he says, God will not forsake his people. What a wonderful gospel promise. We are faithless, right? We are just like Israel, but he will not forsake his people. He will always be gracious. He will always be loving toward his people because of his commitment to his covenant. And so even as God's word on of judgment is, is true for Saul here, we can be equally sure of his promises to David. There's no pure accidents in your life, friend. You can trace God's fingerprints all throughout your life, no matter what you've gone through and, and sufferings you've, you've seen in your life. And so as we end for Samuel, you know, maybe we're expecting to hear the same refrain we read at the end of Judges, that there's no king in Israel, And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, we don't read it. It's not written. Why? Because God had already anointed another king. He'd already prepared another king to rule God's people, a king that would point to our need for a great deliverer, an even better David. David, we're going to see in 2 Samuel, when we get to that a lot later, we're going to take a break from the Old Testament for a while. But we're going to see David mess it up, royally mess up. And so we need a king that's better than him. And we have a king that's better than him. He came in the name of Christ Jesus, and he became a servant. He was a king who was a servant. And so what's going to make us trust him more than all the ways we want to harness and control God? It's realizing the power of the God-man, Jesus Christ. That instead of taking, he gives. You know, Samuel warns Israel, if you really want a king, he's going to take. He's going to take a, a tenth of everything you have. His, your sons are going to have to go into the army. He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. But Jesus gave, and he gave, and he gave. He gave his life. He gave himself. He calls himself the good shepherd. who lays his life down for the sheep. He gave his life through the shedding of his blood, to save his people. And that is what David would focus on for the rest of his ministry. Even as he failed, he knew he needed that kind of love, that kind of power. That's the kind of king that we're all hoping for. That's the king who deserves our whole lives. So I pray that you'll serve him with me, even imperfectly, because he served us perfectly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this entire book. A story of your faithfulness. A story of your goodness. For raising up kings. Failures though they often are. To point us to our great need. Which is forgiveness of our sins in Christ Jesus. The great king. The great king who suffered and died in our place. And secures our way to God. Thank you for this word, Father. Root it into our hearts and cause us to be your believers, your followers who trust in you and walk in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.